Hello listeners, on this show I talk with everyday African Americans who were able to transform their passions and struggles into their dreams. I'm your host Moses Tillman Young and welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. In this episode of the Black Gold Podcast, I interview my mom, Gina Tillman Young. She is an educator and a pastor who lives in Texas and is also the founder of Generation Kindness, a curriculum that offers organic sustainability training for families. In our conversation, my mom and I discuss personal identity, the Black Lives Matter movement, parenting, and her thoughts on kindness. Okay, and we are alive. So today, uh, my guest is my mother, Gina Tillman Young, and she is a pastor and educator, and she is also a community organizer here in Seguin, Texas. Mom, how are you doing today? Hi, Moses. I am just honored to be here and excited to share this conversation with you. To stay on point, and I'll try to do that and answer the question, I am well. That's good. Um, so what I want to ask you today is um, how did you get started in doing what you're doing in terms of being an educator, uh, being a community organizer? What what have you done in order to become those things? Ooh, big bite, big question. Okay, well, in terms of, I'm going to go all the way back to my educational background. I, you know, I have to go back even further than that. So my mother and father were, as long as I can remember, they've been social activists. My father was a sociologist, and uh, he, he did his degree and dissertation and so on at Syracuse University. Um, my mom was, uh, without meaning to be, she is the most effeminate feminist that you would ever want to meet. And I don't know that there's a yeah. contradiction in terms there shouldn't be in a rational society. But um, my, 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 so my dad has always been very interested in and committed to the eradication of white racism. And in fact, um, when he was in, 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 in uh, teaching at Fisk University, he was recruited by the Eisenhower administration to be in the State Department. And he and a bunch of other professors at black universities, historically black colleges and universities um, at that time. And now I'm 63, so that's all, that goes all the way back to like 1957, even before then, because I was born in Indonesia. So there was a time when all of the colonial states that had been acquired by France and um, and and by uh, Portugal and by Great Britain started to topple, and that that happened in Asia and it happened in Africa, and these were the places where the natural resources were happening. Jack, uh, it was a time when there was a sharp division between what was then called the USSR, Russia, and all of the surrounding states, and the United States. 
And once these states, these countries, gained independence, the race was on to see who could form alliances with these states, not because of any sense of altruism or desire for, for, for brotherhood or the development of the nation, but to get their little grubby hands on those natural resources. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, natural okay. resources, you mean, uh, what, diamonds? I mean, diamonds, minerals? I mean gold, I mean oil, I mean, you know, at this time we talk about rare earth minerals and even the technology was not such that those were desirable. But diamonds, gold, silver, copper, uranium, all of those kinds of resources are just abundant. And obviously we know the Middle East and in Africa, particularly, well, not just Sub-Saharan Africa, but at that time, Sub-Saharan Africa. And we're talking about countries that had newly gained independence, like Tanzania, like Ghana, like Nigeria. Okay. And so the United States now approaches those countries and says, we want to be in relationship with you. We want you to be aligned with us. Now, we call those countries out third world countries and emerging yeah. developing nations and everything. Back then they were called non-aligned states because you had the two superpowers. That was USSR, <clears throat> excuse me, and the United States. And then you had countries that were in alliance to them and then you had the non-aligned states. So the United States approaches Kwame Nkrumah, who was the new president of um, Ghana approaches Julius Nyerere, the new president of Tanzania, and says, you know, how can we be in alliance? How can we be friends? How can we support your new independence and development? And they basically laughed up their sleeve and said, we've seen how you handle your own black people. We've seen the oppression. We've seen our leaders have gone to Lincoln University and Howard University and so on. So they've experienced it for themselves. What makes you think that we're stupid enough to believe that yeah. in an alliance with us that you would do anything other than exploit us. So, you know, again, this is a short story, you know, but, but, but the United States comes back home, regroups and scrambles. And this was basically started under Harry Truman and says, oh my gosh, you know, we need to have some black Americans on the front lines in the State Department who are visible in these countries and in positions of quasi-leadership and so on, so it looks like everything is progressing. So they went back to colleges and universities, black colleges and universities, and they recruited the best and the brightest from fa you know, faculty members. And my dad told the story, and it's too bad, both of my parents are, are, are deceased, obviously, at this point, but my dad tells the story of literally one day being asked if he wanted to take the State Department test which is something that people who want to enter foreign service study for, like they do the LSAT or the MCAT or something. And so these people were asked, the next thing you know, they, they, they took the test literally the next day. The amazing numbers of black men, I, want, I wish I could say black men and women, but it was really black men, scored really, really well, scored very, very high skills scores. And that is a reflection of our then belief, that whole talented 10th belief that, you know, if you knew Western civilization, if you knew the culture, if you could speak Latin and Greek, if you were culturally fluent, then one day <clears throat> you would be acknowledged and accepted. 
So these guys were just brilliant. And the exam is basically about knowledge of Western culture. So the next thing I know, and I can't really say I know because I have an older brother who's three years older than I am, but the next thing that happened in my family, the family to which I was going to belong in a couple of years, because I wasn't even born yet, was bam, they wake up and they are in Indonesia. And my dad is a Foreign Service Training Officer there, and my mom, you know, the whole State Department thing is the recruitment of the whole family, because there's entertainment and diplomatic affairs and, and, and community participation, all kinds of things that every member of the family is involved in. So the interesting thing is that when you are a country that is predicated upon and committed to white racism, that goes with you. You know, you take your ugly self wherever you go. So even in the State Department, there were people who were in lower level positions, people who had been rec uh, recruited from, you know, by in, in the United States to be chauffeurs and secretaries and so on, who were really vocally, adamantly upset about the fact that now these black people were coming in and assuming positions of leadership and, and, and uh, assuming roles on executive yeah. levels. So there was all kinds, it's crazy, isn't it? My parents went to Indonesia to serve as diplomats and the hardest problem, the most difficult challenge they had was combating racism. The same nasty little cancer that came from the United States and now had been exported to these third world countries. Anyway, long story short, my dad finally comes back to the United States. Long story about that, because he actually tried to sue the federal government before there were provisions in place to be able to sue the federal government. What and was the, uh, sorry to interrupt again, uh, what was the, the suit against? It was a, an, a discrimination suit. It was oh. a discrimination suit based on the unfair treatment of black Americans in the Foreign Service. He went to colleagues and wanted it to be a class action suit. People were sort of afraid to do that. He proceeded independently and of course was defeated because it was determined, on the, it, was, it went to the federal courts and it was determined that he didn't have any standing because under the current then in the, in the 50s, 60s state of, 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 of uh, regulatory organization, the United States had immunity and couldn't be sovereign immunity and couldn't be sued. Okay. Okay. But he continues in his pursuit of social justice and his desire to be a player in the war to end white racism in the United States. So we wound up moving to Minnesota where he worked with a non-governmental organization called the Interfaith Fair Housing Project. So I grew up in this all-white environment, all-white, and we were chosen by that non-governmental organization to because we were a black family. And it's so funny. The guidelines were is that they wanted some they wanted a family of four, a little girl and a little boy who would attend the public school. Um, that we couldn't be too dark and too too negroid looking, but we couldn't be too, you know, white and paleish either. And although, you know, I'm sort of average brown, typical Negro looking yeah. person, that was fine. 
and and we have so much sort of intermarriage and and, and that history in our family. <clears throat> Excuse me. That our family comes out. I'm going to say like like puppies. Mm. You know, <laughs> the the black lab that has a yellow lab and so on and so forth. And my brother was that yellow lab. And it turns out that it was actually a point of discussion, the fact that my brother was so, so pale and wouldn't be recognizable immediately as a black American. Anyway, we moved there and my parents were doing grassroots organization and working in Minnesota. And the um, then government governor of, of Minnesota was Hubert Humphrey. And he created statewide legislation uh, and it was uh, all kinds of, you know, fair housing legislation, fair employment legislation, and those kinds of empowerment legislation, and literally sort of had nobody to test them. So by proxy, and that means a white person bought our home for us on our behalf and then turned it over to us. We moved into a white neighborhood. Um, we had crosses burned on our lawns. Um, I attended a white public school and so did my brother. And gosh, I look back at my brother and the fact that he came from a tough black man, you gotta be blacker kind of dad who um, said, you know, if anybody bothers your sister, you know, you would better fight them and you better come home or else, you know, you're going to answer to me. And I'm sure a lot of people listening especially coming from, you know, black families and minority families and especially my age because things have kind of flipped a yeah. little bit now. We've gotten a little bit softer and kinder. Yeah, I hope, just right? a little bit, yeah. Just, yeah, just, a little <laughs> yeah. Bit, just a little bit and just some of the time, yeah. right? But um, my poor brother, because I had such a big mouth and I was the kind of person, if you know, if you called me a nigger or something, I'd go, well, you're a white trash and I'm, you know, and I'm ready to go at it and I'm ready to go at it because when the going gets tough, I can wait just a minute. Yeah. Jim, <laughs> that was my brother's name. So anyway, uh, so, so so that we grew up in that kind of a family. And we grew up in a family that because we were not in the United States, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because we were not in the United States, my family was able to fashion its own reality and its own narrative and conversation about negritude, blackness. And so the reality and conversation that I grew up in was that to be black was the most wonderful and cool thing. You know, my brother would look at my hair and say, oh, you know, what do I have to do to make my hair more kinky like Gina's? And the big thing was to, you know, get out in that equatorial sun and to become, you know, to become as toasty brown as you could. So my brother was always walking around with sunburn. Because you couldn't toast brown. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I mean, the whole thing is that there was such a positive spin put on the, 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 our identity as black people. And we learned about black history. And we met leaders of state. We met Kwame Nkrumah. And we met Tom Mboya and Jomo Kenyatta. And we met Miriam Makiba. And everything was romanticized and... Um, just made wonderful that you're part of this wonderful struggle and look at these heroes and look at how beautiful they are and look at how talented they are and look at how much stronger you are and look at how we've endured through history. So I grew up with this positive, positive reality. Then I moved to Minnesota and again, it was like I was on an alien planet or I was the alien on a planet 
because there were no other black people there. Hmm. And so any feelings of insecurity or defeat or being second best, or, I never experienced that. I can remember growing up, and uh, again, anybody who's black will, 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 will relate to this, you know, having my little kinky, fluffy hair, which my mommy never straightened, but having my kinky, fluffy hair, which my mom, every single day, would do a different hairstyle. You know, she would do cornrows and afro puffs and put things in my hair, you know, flowers and this and that. And I remember my mom coming home when I was in first grade from a parent-teacher meeting and saying that, you know, my the, the, the teacher asked, does Gina like me? You know, she has a way that she looks at me and it's so penetrating and so on. And then my mom went to a PTA meeting and one of the white mothers approached her and said, you know, you get us in trouble because our kids come home, our daughters come home. I say, mommy, Gina's mother takes the time to give her different hairstyles every day. But these kids, you know, had straight hair and it was yeah. just in a haircut that would show up the same way every day. So all of those positive experiences, I think, are what really shape your identity. And identity is, I wake you up at three o'clock in the morning, you know, and you're totally, totally disoriented. Are you beautiful? Yes, I am. You know, who are you? For me, I'm, a, you know, I'm a Christian girl. I'm a Christian woman. And all of those experiences, they really become deeply imbued in you. And they give you a worldview and an outlook. And if I could um, express that outlook just using scripture, it would be Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then my worldview was that the survival, the strength, the endurance, the talent, the ingenuity, the tenacity of black people was evidence of the fact that God smiled on us in the face of human adversity and has strengthened us. So, grew up like that. Finally moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And when I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, it was in the middle. I mean, it's so funny to say in the middle of a civil rights struggle and civil rights movement, because that could be anything, yeah. couldn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, it could be post-Reconstruction. It could be the civil rights movement of the 50s. It could be, you know, the protests of the 60s, the late 60s. And yeah. that's really what I'm talking about. It could be today. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's interesting, and it's, and it's sad, and it's frustrating, because it's the same script playing over and over and over again. But I moved to Atlanta, and it was at a time when a number of black intellectuals and social activists were returning to the South. And this is something that was, you know, documented in, 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 in news reports and in uh, national magazines that there was this re-migration to the South and the renaissance of Atlanta, Georgia. So that's when I became aware of the Black Power Movement and um, you know all, the, all, all, all of the other information that was shared and presented about the intellectuals and revolutionaries that were involved in the struggle for Black equality. Okay, went to high school, graduated from high school. I have always been a really, really um, high performer academically. I would even distinguish being a high performer academically from being, from being intelligent or being bright. 
because it's a process and a method and you master it and you yeah. know how to give the people what the people want in order to get the A's and so on. And it was part of our family ethos that everybody makes straight A's. So it wasn't even like you come home with a report kind of, look, mommy, I got straight A's. Oh, what can we do? Let's go stop. And she and my mother would be, well, yeah. I mean, you're really <laughs> intelligent, you know, yeah. and, and, and you're probably the brightest person in your class. And, you know, so, so what's the big deal? So I grew up with that. I got ready to go to college and I had gotten accepted at, I think, Cliff and Radcliffe and Mount Holyoke because I made a really, really high PSAT score. I was one of those finalist people and everybody recruited me and everything. And my father sat me down one day and said, oh, you don't need to do this. And by then, he was a private consultant and he was working with multinational corporations headquartered though here in the United States mm -hmm. who had made a decision and at the end of the day for the United States everything is money, 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 money. Yeah. And the decision had been made the bottom line will be strengthened if we solve this race problem. You know, there'll be more revenue, we'll be able to tap on the body of talent that exists within the black community and so on. And we will make more money. money. Yeah. All right. So, so, so that was kind of the um, time. And so my dad was a private consultant and he had, he worked with the Dayton, Dayton Foundation, which is now Target and, you know, 3M and, and different large organizations. And he was giving white racism seminars. He also started giving white racism seminars at Ivy League schools. So he had spent some time at Mount Holyoke and at Brown and at various, you know, the, 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 the schools that are in the New England area. And he sat me down and said, oh, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. They are admitting more black students there, but there's a kind of isolation that takes place. And we go to those schools and you walk into the cafeteria. And this is so funny because it's the name of a very popular book that was written by a sociologist recently. And he said, and we asked the question, why are all the black kids sitting by themselves yeah. in the cafeteria? And he said, you will not get a full and complete experience. Okay, I was young. I went to school early. I went to school at um, 15 going 16. And, uh, but, but, but I'd been a, a, out a lot and traveled a lot and been able to lead an adolescence that, that, that encouraged me to be sort of independent and so on. And, uh, you know, I was typical 15, 16 year old, don't tell me what to do, it's my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I got the money, I got the scholarship, I got the others. So my father came to me and he bribed me. And he said, so if, if you go to, he, he applied to Hampton, it was Hampton Institute then, but mm -hmm. Hampton University, on my behalf, I didn't even know it. And he came and said, so look, Tina, you've been accepted at this school. And, you know, people, you know, black children from all over the world come to this school. And it's a place where you don't have to defend being black. And you're not going to be preoccupied with being black. You're going to be preoccupied with, you know, getting the best education and, and, and full self-expression and self-actualization. I was like, self-actualization, <laughs> my foot. I'm going off. There was Holyoke that I chose. Yeah. And he says, I'll give you $10,000. <laughs> you, I mean, this, this, this is the way it goes back. I'm talking about money. And I'll give you $10,000 if you go to Hampton University. And I will, you know, give you a car if you go to Hampton University. <laughs> and I'll do that. Okay. Yeah. I was. I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have anything to prove. I didn't have yeah. any extra grant. And I already picked out, you know, the red comet that I wanted yeah. and so on. 
Okay, so off I went to Hampton University, and that was one of the most life-saving things that my father could have done. Even today, as I look at Kamala Harris, and I didn't like her history and her politics as a prosecutor and participating in the mass incarceration of black men and the tough on crime laws and so on. But somehow I look at her and I don't have any personal affiliation with her or association with her, especially since even though she sort of was in the same circles that I wound up being in as a result of um, having uh, graduated from Harvard Law School, she's much younger than I am. So I, I, just, I just haven't had any interaction with her. Um, I'm not a member of a, a, a sorority, yeah. and those would be the things that would put me in touch mm -hmm. with her. But I look at this woman, this, this, this Afro-continental Indian woman who attended Howard University. And it's mm -hmm. so funny, because I went to Hampton, and Hampton gave me an incredible experience and an incredible sense of... Um, possibility, infinite possibility in terms of being able to do and achieve anything that I wanted to do. And infinite possibility in terms of having access to the whole world. So to do theater and, uh, you know, perform in Greek tragedies, to do an exchange program as I did at the University of Stockholm. And a lot of times what I found when I grew up and started comparing notes with other black colleagues, is that their blackness conf confined and defined them, you know? And so, you know, I, I, I must do the black thing and I must do the African thing and I must do that. But now here I was at a university where I could do anything. Howard went one step further because Howard had a mission and a dedication to the consciousness raising of its black student body and instilling something in the black student body there that had to do with uh, group consciousness, not an individual achievement consciousness. Even today, I look at the number of friends that I have who are multi-millionaires. You've heard us sit at the table. Yeah. You know, your dad and I. And one of the things we marvel at, and he was there. I mean, he was, you know, for, for a long time, you know, I'll, I'll reiterate that for you. I'm not telling you a story yeah. you don't know. It's something you've lived. But he was, um, when we decided to pursue a different lifestyle, he was the senior vice president, uh, corporate vice, vice president of Verizon. And so, you know, that is a very, very affluent lifestyle. But I look at Howard, and I even look at Hampton, and I look at the number of successful CEOs and people who are in government government positions and and the body of scholarship that's been written by black people. And you say, how could we be where we are today? How could we be in a situation where young people have to take to the streets and march over police brutality? Yeah. How could we be in a situation where it was where where it is novel and important for young people to declare that black lives matter black lives matter 
that term is a reaction formation. You don't declare Black Lives Matter. It is a retaliation. It's a retaliatory statement to activities or other statements that have been made against you. That you don't matter. That you're nothing. Yeah. And this is what we can do. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Yeah. So, yeah. Seven yeah. times for fun with a with an epithet. You know. Yeah. So do you think that the Black Lives Matter movement is good in terms of raising awareness that a Black Lives Matter and that also that Black Lives Matter rather than simply police brutality, but also that they matter with their education, their health, their financial standards. How do you, uh, what is your ideas about Black Lives Matter movement? I think it's a marvelous movement. And I've read so many different things about, you know, who's really funding it and who's behind it and all that kind of stuff. As a Christian, you know, um, a lot of times you read all of these conspiracy theories and this is the force and that's the force. And I'm very naive mm-hmm. when it comes to my delightfully naive, mm-hmm. faithfully yeah. naive, when it comes to my understanding of the way things work. And the way things work is, you know, this thing is taking on a certain force of momentum. This thing has impacted people's lives. This thing must be something that God inspired. You know, Black Lives Matter. I think it's a marvelous movement. I, again, as you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue with my story, but as the director of the school in which you matriculated yeah. for 12 years, one of my recurring laments was the way with the um, advent of, 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 of um, technology and especially the computer games and the 10,000 television stations yeah. and the violence and so on and so forth, that all young people, but particularly minority young people, had become so complacent, had become so docile, had just been siphoned off. And I said, I, I, I would always say by materialism and, uh, and, and um, what? By materialism and technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so now Black Lives Matter is a call, it's a wake up call. It's a call to advocacy. It is a message to young people. And here is how you matter. You can change things. And so now some people look at, uh, some conservative blacks look at all of these young people in the streets, you know, marching. And they, you know, click their little teeth and say, this is so, you know, and and they're violent and it's no wonder that people are shooting at them. You know, look at the people in the hoodies and the this and that. I don't think so at all. I think it is a part of a process. And for the young people, it's a big piece of a very intricate puzzle, but that it is so necessary in terms of the advancement of this movement. The other thing that's so incredible about Black Lives Matter is that there is a portion of the young white population that maybe had not been able to really quantify white racism and even probably recognize that they were afforded a certain privilege for being white, that maybe wanted to shake off that part of the white identity that is idolatrous. Yeah. Who are you? I'm I am white. white. Yeah. You know, why are you white? Because I'm not you. Yeah. And how do you remain white and <clears throat> have it have meaning? I have to keep you 
where you are, mm-hmm. you know, and I can do all of the, I can do all of the hip hop dancing and I can be as, you know, woke as far as, you know, foods and travel and I can do my little missionary yeah. service in African countries. But at the end of the day, and I say, who are you when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning? I'm a white woman. Mm-hmm. I'm a white man. And that preoccupation with that aspect, and it's a false aspect, and it's an idolatrous aspect, and it really just diminishes, you know, the very core essence of, of people's meaning beyond race. And it's something that was constructed to separate people and to appease the lower classes and so on of white people. Now it gives them a place to, because for the white person to be able to say black lives matter is the beginning of a liberation from another kind of enslavement. And I think it's more invidious, more insidious than the enslavement of chains. It's an identity enslavement, right? Yeah. Okay, so anyway... I grew up, I graduated from high school, I graduated from, from, from college, and I was always, you know, the, the brainiac, you know, four row, yeah. four row, and a couple of years ahead of myself, and, and so on. And uh, I went to Harvard Law School. Okay. How did you get into Harvard Law School? Well, that's an interesting thing, too. I believe that if I had not attended Hampton University... You wouldn't have been able to get in. Yeah, Harvard at Clifford Holyoke... Holyoke, the likelihood, maybe I would have, but the likelihood of my getting it would have been so significantly diminished. Because now when I got to Harvard Law School, you see that about 10% of the Harvard Law School entering class was from Harvard and, 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 you know, Cliff and all the Ivies and so on. But that school was a school that was committed to diversity. And so you found people from... Transylvania University and and such exists. Transylvania (laughs) University and, you know, the small college in Iowa and so on. And the black college from Hampton. And there was, uh, there were a couple of people there in my first year class from Howard. And there was a guy there who was from uh, Morehouse. And so that means that I was a rock star. You know, I was I was a, a a mega fish in my tiny little small pool called Hampton. Mm-hmm. And now it's the you're an intellectual, yeah. You know, you're interested in social justice, yeah. You know, you read and write well, you publish, you do the newspaper thing, yeah. What are you gonna do with your life? I don't know. So I'm not gonna be a doctor, I'll tell you yeah. that. <laughs> okay, go to law school. And that that was just about as much depth and analysis uh that went into my decision to go to law school. And I tell my mom and dad, and they're like, you know, sounds good to me. Yeah. And, you know, got admitted at Harvard. Okay, you know, go, go on and do this thing. And so that was a sort of turning point for me um, because it put me in an intellectual milieu where for the first time in my life, and it was just based on reputation, I was intimidated, not by other people, but by the institution. Mm-hmm. I felt as if, I had been a float by, give the people what the people want, make your A and move on type of um, student. And, 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 and so that pushed me to sort of um, really work harder. And I was one of those people, you know, the mayor of Houston now, 
is named Sylvester Turner. Boy, I have so much re respect for that boy. And you know, I, it's so funny. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna digress. Yeah, for a sure, minute. go ahead. And so you know, I, I, I send him texts sometimes, and I said, okay, it's been two floods now. You know, it's been you know riots in the streets. It's been you know death of this young man. You've had this and that, and the other. you have every kind of disaster. Did you really think, you know, when you jumped out of the state legislature and decided to jump into being the mayor of Houston, that it would be all of that? And he always sends me back the LOL. And I'm always telling him, boy, I am praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. But that, 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 I'm going to say that boy, because I'm hearkening back to the time when yeah. we were in the early 20s, and I closed the library. Every day, you know, which means the library closed, I think, at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And we would walk home, and he lived not so far away from me, you know, about three blocks down the street. Silliest guy you ever want to meet. You know, we would go to the point where we were supposed to split. And there was a point in time in Cambridge when there was a string of mass murders that was committed. And there were young people, and it was right in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so he wouldn't walk me home. He would walk me to the corner... And then he'd say, you stand here and watch me while I run past the street. <laughs> and he would wave a handkerchief and scream, Jesus, 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 what are you doing? Well, if somebody is a mass murderer, maybe they're a crazy person. You know, maybe he doesn't want to marry somebody, murder somebody who's, you know, all yeah. about Jesus and stuff. So anyway, I was in that environment. And really, when they talk about best minds, best minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Best minds best minds that challenge you to push and think and uh, exceed your own expectations. And then best opportunities. Opportunities to work in legal services, opportunities, legal service clinics, opportunities to uh, represent, you know, people who are in the criminal justice system for parole hearings yeah. and that sort of thing. I just had incredible opportunities. And, um, Met, and the best opportunity I had was an opportunity to meet, fall in love with, and marry a boy who would become your dad, right? So, um, yeah, so, so, so I graduated from law school. Oh, now here's something else that happened along the way. After my first year of law school, during my first year of law school, and I had become a Christian in college, um, I just really felt to go into ministry. And it was another... If somebody said, you you know, you must define what your five-year plan is and tell me what your career goals are, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know, but, but I really felt that God was saying, I want you to go into ministry. I want you to go into ministry. So I did a joint program when I was at Harvard Law School. I actually received my Juris Doctor degree. The program that I was interested in pursuing, there were joint programs yeah. there where you could get like your Master in Public Policy or your Master's in Business Administration and your and your Juris Doctor, and, you know, the administration worked out, you know, this account for that, and that, but Divinity wasn't one of them. So I did a joint degree in Law and Divinity, did not receive an MDiv, um, spent a couple of years, you know, bouncing back and forth, and made the determination that the terminal degree, the final degree... I'm proud to announce the upcoming release of my online course, Level Up Lucid, where I'll teach you the art of lucid dreaming and how you can use it to level up your life so that you can solve real-life problems, break false beliefs, and just play around in the subconscious mind that God gave you. 
If you're interested, you can sign up now to get access to the Level Up Lucid course outline at the Black Gold Pod website. And now back to the show. ...that I should receive should be my Juris Doctor degree. Right, so I graduated. I, I, I worked in the pastorate. I was a youth pastor at a Baptist church. I was involved in community service. Oh, I had a lot of successes in terms of the youth that I worked with, in terms of, again, just helping to in the formation of a spiritual identity that uh, would lead them to understand that God doesn't make mistakes yeah. at all. And that they were, they had everything to be proud of and everything to live for and every possibility in their lives. So that was one thing. And, and, and you know, also um, a, a lot of challenges. You know, I had, I had young people who were supposed to be sort of under my watch care turn up, you know, teen pregnancy and some other issues and so on. So, so that was the first time that I had a taste of community involvement. And it, again, ran the spectrum from advocacy to prison legal work to dealing with inner city young people. And it was one of the first times really that I'd been able to work in an exclusively um, predominantly black environment. And, 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 and I really had grown up going to a church. It was, it was Ralph Abernathy's church in Atlanta. I kind of had grown up, but when we landed in Atlanta, that was our family church. And it was a very sort of everybody's a doctor, lawyer, dentist yeah. kind of thing, you know, wear your $400, $500 knit suit and, you know, the hats and it wasn't an amen church and so on. And interestingly enough, even when I was in divinity school, I went back and was a summer pastor at that church under Ralph Abernathy. And you know, Ralph Abernathy was the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and he was right hand man, best buddy to Martin, to Martin Luther King during the civil rights movement. So anyway, I had that experience. And so I graduated from law school. I um, got married, right, on, on, on that August 16th. I was ordained in the, no, isn't that right? I had, I spent four years pursuing my graduate studies. Because no. I was doing the combination of studies. Yeah. I met your daddy, and he was in my entering class at law school. So your dad gets to his third year of law school. He proposes to me. He graduates. We get married. Okay. Okay? Then the next year, we had your oldest sister. Krista. Your oldest sister, Krista, who is 20 years older than you. And there are another six children in between you and her. But, um, so we had Krista, and uh, then I graduated from law school. I was ordained a month later. We moved to the Washington, D.C. area where your father was uh, was, was doing his first stint with a law firm with Shaw Pittman, um, Potts and Trowbridge. And uh, yeah, so all of these changes took place at the same time. And just as an interesting aside, I was thinking about, I don't like the word stress. Yeah. I think that's a very contemporary American, let's make us all weak and weird and, you know, so we take Prozac or whatever it is, you know, um, kind of term. Because stress to me is living in Jim Crow America. 
and wondering which, well, you say, well, we do, don't we? Yeah. Well, okay, so that's what I mean. That's legit. Yeah. Wondering when you walk down the street, you know, somebody's just going to pick you off because they feel like it and mm-hmm. shoot you in the back because they feel like it. Yeah. Stress is wondering if you're going to be lynched. And I would, I used to hearken back to the Jim Crow era, the, the, the Jim Crow era, and that's, you know, pre-civil rights legislation yeah. and decisions and so And so I never liked that word stress, but I can remember back in that time, and I'm going to place the time, it was in 1980, I had done all these things, so I had you know, graduated from law school and been ordained, which is a quite an, an, an arduous process. Yeah. And, um, you know, moved, relocated, and had a child and so on. And my mother brought me uh, an issue of Time magazine. And it had to be like 81, 82. I need to go back and research this. And the cover of Time magazine was about stress. And so that's the point at which the word stress became like a like a meme. Yeah. Uh, practically. Part of and so she showed me this stress chart that assigned points for, you know, if you have yeah. just graduated, if you have given birth to a child, if you have relocated, if you have... And we laughed because she ticked off every experience that I've had and added up the total and I was dead like three <laughs> times. And it was so funny. Yeah. And yet I was so... Life is so good. I love my baby. I'm happy and everything. And really what happened was I started doing pastoral counseling. Uh, I worked with this wonderful, wonderful pastor by the name of Rafe Taylor, God bless his soul. And he's somebody who I had known and under whom I had served as a, as a, as a chaplain um, when I was at Harvard Divinity School. And then he had taken a very large metropolitan church in the Capitol Hill area mm. of um, D.C. And then at that time... It was very, very difficult, especially in the Baptist ministry, and I don't even know what the politics are now, but um, for, for women to be ordained in ministry. And he had been very involved. He and Ralph Abernathy and um, another very influential pastor in, in, in the Boston area who just happened to be my grandmother's pastor, you know, and very influential in the, in, in, in the ministers' alliances and so on. All of them had stood up and rallied to my defense. A, a, a faculty, a, a faculty member by the name of Preston Williams, and I didn't ask for it. But they had just said, God just aligned everything, and so these men of influence stood up and said, "You know, this girl is going through." So, so I had been ordained, and um, then you know we moved to D.C. I hooked up with this pastor again, who was then my friend because yeah. I had worked with him so closely as a chaplain. He had a, a counseling show. He had a pastoral counseling radio show. And so I worked with him a little bit in talk radio. Took your sister with me. You know, set up a playpen in the office. Was doing, you know, private pastoral counseling and, and working with him as well. Yeah. And it was so cool because sometimes Krista's uh, presence and watching her play would facilitate more open conversation. Because no, it sort of gave people something to look at. Yeah. And something for me to look at. And it was a point of, you know, she would do something and you're at a very tense point or you're about to share or not about to share. And it was kind of a point of digression. You know, it was like a sort of point of comic relief. I yeah. mean, you know, Shakespeare would use that. So, so anyway, I had Krista and God made it clear to me, and this is something so interesting, that, you know, see this girl right here? 
you know, this is your first ministry. Mm. And just, you know, be faithful and loyal and the best mom you can be to her. And things will develop. You know, you'll have opportunities to preach. You'll have opportunities to pastor. You, all these things I place on your heart. But if you're going to seek me first, you know, and there's a scripture that says, you know, if you seek the kingdom of God first, then God does the orchestrating and adds all of these things, everything that you want that your heart's desire to see. So I really became devoted to the ways that I could be a mom, you know, do a gig here and do a gig there and do so so I started doing all these these different entrepreneurial schemes. You know, I did a legal services support directory and I had these um these uh trucks for these you know armored cars pulling up <laughs> to our we were living in a yeah, little little brick, you know, three bedroom, yeah. one and a half bath brick neighborhood, you know. And these uh Purolator courier trucks would pull up because they were the specs from these law firms that were, and see uh, again, you didn't funny. have you didn't have desktop publishing, yeah. you know. So <laughs> they were the specs that were being delivered, you know, to to, to my house. So I yeah. could put them together. It was really crazy. Uh, I did commercial real estate. I did a variety of things. That's all. All the while, I was always involved, you know, in some church community. And really, we just made a decision at some point, and then. Every two years, just baby, mm-hmm. baby, baby. Personal decision as a Christian that, you know, God will make the decisions about when we have babies. And boy, did he. And he made it again, and he made it again, and he made it again. You know, followed your dad, obviously, as he's moving up the corporate ladder. That took us to New Jersey. Spent some time in New Jersey, you know, dropped a couple of little babies there. It was incredible. And then started to become more involved because as the children are getting older, in my children's education. And I was very concerned that the education of my children was incomplete, um, was inadequate. Uh, even, even, even the lessons that they were learning in history and the sort of literature that they were leading, reading was not, it wasn't the way I had grown up. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't esteem building. And so I became more and more involved in education and more children and I, served on the, um, as, as, as one of the board of directors of a Montessori school. So we're bouncing back before between DC and Pennsylvania and, uh, and New Jersey and back to DC again. And so that's really how the educational component developed. When we got to Princeton, New Jersey, I looked around and realized that I could practically stand on a street corner and say, and five people would say, please let me work for you, please can I? So that was a time when I guess the, the count, you know, ultimately wound up with 10 children and and uh, uh, that, that were either biologically born, biologically we had, you have seven brothers, oh, seven. So you're, you're one of seven. And then uh, the three other children that we adopted and you know better than everybody, sharing your bedroom, your bathroom, your everything, yeah. always other people's children. Yeah. I have a friend who is um, an MSW, and she's out of New York City, and she and, and and she's a Jamaican woman. And when we lived in New Jersey, it seems like once a month, she was dropping somebody off on my doorstep, an informal arrangement, somebody she had pulled out of the system, and let this child live with you. You know, I've got the bases covered. Nothing, you know, well, you know, legally, you're you're, you're okay, and so on. 
and uh, which looking back, I wonder if I was, but other people's children, you know, for a year, for two years, for, for you know, for various amounts of time, other people's children where children would begin to thrive. Sometimes they would stay with us for a year. And then the mother who maybe was, you know, was um, involved in drug addiction and prostitution would show up with the new boyfriend and say, we know you love this child, pass. Mm-hmm. Or else yeah. I'll take her home. Yeah. And you know, you know who I'm oh, talking yeah. about. And learning how to understand that those children are not my children. You know, they didn't pass through my body and I couldn't stand up to terrorism. You know, I couldn't stand up, I couldn't acquiesce to terrorism. And so there were some times that were so heartbreaking where parents would show up and say, you know, give me that Volvo you have or else your child isn't, but this child is really. And you'd have to say, no, you know, this is your child. God bless you. And, you know, God put me in her life or his life. And, and, and I'm sure that God will continue to protect this child. Yeah. So there was that. So there was this point in which God just showed me that taking care of children and now attending to the superior education of children and empowering education of children. And although we did have, you know, white children and European children and so on, most of the kids with whom I interacted were children of color. Um, and, 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 and so that's kind of, you know, how that evolved. So the next thing I know, I have a severe respiratory illness that can't be diagnosed except for it has been predicted that'll be fatal. And I was in my 30s, I guess, and um, had to be, because I was 43 when I had to. So I was in my 30s, and my mom came to visit me and said, Gina, would you go to a holistic doctor? And this woman is a Christian, and she's a, she's a, you know, she's um, East Indian, and she has her practice. We were living in D.C. in Hyattsville Mm -hmm. and so on. And, And I said, okay, I'll go to Hyattsville and see this woman. And that woman changed my life. And uh, I was in, very involved in ministry and involved in the building of affordable housing. And it was just after the uh, release and then soon after election of Nelson Mandela. And we were doing affordable housing communities in South Africa. I had a, I had a construction company called My Father's House. Always. You know, mom. Something else, yeah. You know, you you have you have a housekeeper or two. You know, because God has blessed you with those kinds of resources. You have everybody's children, and you have a wonderful mom who come and step in for you. And so I was able to travel and be involved in ministry and be involved in various projects. And the, and it's funny because our economic system has always been that whatever money we have, and my husband was a tremendously high earner just, you know, it just goes back in the pool yeah. to help everybody. And so you've grown up that way. You know, all of the children have grown up that way, that you don't take money. And I have a son right now named Noah, who was here a couple of days ago, and he's a pastor, and he's pastoring a small church that's in Stockdale, Texas. And there was a point at which he said, well, my congregation has approached me about um, offering me a salary, and, uh, and I said, yo, why not? Why not? He said, but mom, we don't do that. 
we don't do that. And that's what I mean about sort of the kind of identity formation mm -hmm. that even if the person who taught you, yeah. you know, to, to be a certain kind of way comes back later and says, well, you know, take care of yourself. Yeah. Well, Why we don't you? care. No, we don't no, do that. This is in me. We don't do that. Yeah. So the um, person that she's talking about is in episode uh, number one of the podcast. And that's my brother, Noah Tillman Young, just you. If you want to listen to his story and how he got into uh, both training horses and also how he became a pastor, it's the very first episode. So if you're, if you're interested in that, um, go ahead and please listen to it. He shares some really great advice about his path and doing those things and also in becoming a better pastor, a better husband, father, and a better horse trainer. You can so, say a better uh, son. And a better son, no, too. No, he's already yeah. always been a good yeah. son. Good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, again, if I can digress again. Oh, yeah. I am so pleased. We always say, you know, we're not proud of you. You know, we're not yeah. to be proud of you because that's, that's sort of a conditional love. You, yeah. know, you do something good. <laughs> but, but we are just amazed and uh, very supportive and very impressed with this uh, series, this podcast series that you're doing. Oh, thank you very much. And, and you know, one of the things that, and here's the thing, I'm going to go back to the Black Lives Matter. The interesting thing about Black Lives Matter is there are no rock stars, superheroes, icons. And in yeah. all of the civil rights movements that um, we have known, over the course of so many years, there's always a, you know, well, what would Malcolm do? What would Marvis Garvey yeah. say? You know, what does MLK say? And now I thought that one of the coolest things is that the poster boy, if you will, yeah, of, God the, of the movement, soul, yeah, of the entire movement is who? It's uh, George Floyd. I mean, and talk about every man. Yeah, at least it's at he's least a that post-COVID. Yeah. He's a person who maybe had some run-ins with the law. He's a person who um, has, 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 has children. He's a son. He's a, you know, he's a father. And he is just a regular Houston from the hood boy. He was, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, I, and I think I'm fair in saying he is because his life and persona has continued you know, as a result of his memorialization yeah. um, through the movement. And I think that that is just incredible mm -hmm. because that's what enfranchisement, that is the, the right that accrues to each and every person. Why? Yeah. You know, because he has a certain background, because he has a socioeconomic status, because he... No, because he is a human being. being. Yeah. He is a human being. So he was a human being, you know, who was entitled to engage in a human activity. Mm -hmm. He was entitled to breathe. Mm -hmm. He was entitled to breathe. Yeah. And then, as if that was not significant enough, and I'm so sorry that the tragedy led to the memorialization of these people, but now here comes a black woman, Breonna Taylor. And every time... I look at Breonna Taylor, I told you this the other day, something about her face and her smile and that particular pose yeah, she strikes, that, they have, yeah. that she strikes in that, in, that, in, that, in that photograph reminds me of your oldest sister, you Krista, know, yeah. born Krista. But here is this woman who is, 
you know, one of those people that we, you know, clap for while we give pay them seven dollars and twenty five cents an mm -hmm. hour. You know, and, and, and it, what do you call it? A first line. Yeah, first responder. First responder. Yeah. And all she's doing is minding her own business responsibly, you know, paying her rent, you know, living with somebody that she loves, maintaining a clean household. It's so funny. During the age, during this COVID time, you know, we have come and gone in terms of housekeeping and clutter and so on. And it's so funny. Sometimes when I look at it, and I see them so many times, and they're so heartbreaking, but you see the videotapes, you know, inside people's houses and so on. And I looked at Brianna Taylor's house, and everything was so neat. Yeah. She didn't know that, you know, people were going to come busting it. You know, but the dishes are done, and this is put up, and you see the pots over there draining and so on. And and it's so interesting. Cause she's, so she's just an American girl mm -hmm. who is sacrificing her life and her health and her and her future to be able to go in, you know, and help people and provide people who are in the most vulnerable and desperate circumstances because of this virus. And in the midst of that, that her life should be taken, you know. Yeah. So Black Lives Matter is it a legitimate movement. Oh boy, is it ever, you know, should people continue to, and, and, and it's, and it is a movement for young people that, you know, take to the streets and, you know, march all day and yeah. wear your mask. Well, you yeah, I have a son <laughs> yeah. who's a filmmaker and he, um, covered, he, he, he did a doc that involved his, uh, coverage of, of, uh, the, the, the March on Washington, this most recent March on Washington, yeah. and, and, and another event where a number of people convened a, a, around social activism. Yeah, the March of Black Lives. That's yeah. right, the March of Black Lives, that's right. And uh, that, that, that was my thing. To, he, you know, it's so funny, I was having a conversation with him in the midst of the pandemic, and every day I'm saying, you know, I'll get you this nebulizer, and it has, you know, H2O2 in it, and I want you to breathe this, you know, and then, you know, I want you to do this with colloidal silver, because we, we don't really do doctors, yeah. and we don't do conventional Bills, medicines yeah. and so on, and we believe there are other things that are just as, if not more, effective. Um, effective. Yeah. But so, then one day I'm having a conversation with him, with him, and it's one of these, either I say something about this, or it'll be a lie of omission. Yeah. And he tells me that, um, you know, he's getting ready to go film this doc and he's going to have to ride in an airplane and he's taking his crew with him and he's going to be staying here and there. So the next thing I know, it's like I get the, the address of the hotel and I'm sending all of this, you know, this special kind of mask for every man on your crew and that kind of... So I say, you know, do what you have to do, young people. Do what you have to do. Anybody who feels that their way of expressing the fact that all human lives matter and now a certain segment of our population has been uh, targeted for oppression or let's say the continual oppression of a certain segment of our population and those are people of color and more specifically black people has been targeted and that it is not going to be tolerated if you feel moved to participate 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 safely you know, keep your distance, yeah. keep your mask on, take your liposomal, your liposomal vitamin, vitamin C, C. Yeah. in high doses, <laughs> and you can look that up for yourself. But yeah, it's, it's very important. It's very important. Um, sorry, uh, do you think that um, 
because of COVID and previously the uh, quarantine that people had to undergo, that the the murder of George Floyd uh, both moved people to protest simply, not simply, but um, mainly because A, it would be something that needed to be done and also that it would allow people to then get out of their houses in terms of... You know, that's interesting because I hadn't really, I hadn't thought you were going someplace else with uh, this, no. but everybody was home and now everybody is watching you know, whatever they are. I recommend that people really watch a news program called democracy.org. So I'm going to say everybody's watching CNN or democracy.org or whatever. And everybody's attention is captured sort of at the same time. And we have become a society that has allowed ourselves to be um, (laughs) convoluted language, but dictated to in terms of what we think about and what we become impassioned over and what we react and respond to. But now, look at how God orchestrated something where everybody's in timeout. Yeah. Do I have your attention now? And in the midst of do I have your attention now? Yes. Yes, you do. And do you see this horrible, atrocious thing that happened? And do you want to get out anyway? Yeah. You know, and do you feel now... That by even getting out, you're making an, a double sacrifice. The sacrifice of making yourself vulnerable and exposing yourself to the likes of, you know, the kind of tear grass that was shot by, you know, people in positions of authority. I say you can't say anything nice about somebody, don't even call yeah. their name. But anyway, you know, the likes of that. And, uh, and, and, and so, yeah. So to me, it was if, if, these things had to happen, and they have the interplay of events and the coordination of events. The timing has been absolutely miraculous. It really has. So and now uh, yeah. we can fast forward to another kind, to another timing that awakens the consciousness of America in a way that it might not have been awakened to go stand in line for five hours, to, you know, suffer intimidation by, you know, these paramilitary forces that are showing up at the polls, you know, with with their their machine guns and so on. For what purpose? To to, uh, exercise that fundamental right that accrues to every human being that participates you know, in a government that would dare to call itself a democracy, the right to vote. Because the numbers of people who have voted are just incredible. Mm-hmm. Are yeah. just incredible. Record numbers. Record, record saying, numbers. Yeah. And absolutely mega record numbers of people of color. Yeah. 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 So after COVID, you have planned are still planning on creating an online portion for your school how well, is that coming along in terms okay. of so you know just to sort of go back and catch up i wound up um moving for a portion of time with all of the children you were not even born yet to um an island a two island confederation saint kitts and nevis at that point in time and this was just at the beginning of the new millennia, it was, it was throughout the 90s, 
Um, at that point in time, St. Kitts Nevis was the poorest English-speaking country in the Western world, uh, second only to Haiti, which is French-speaking mm. country. But it's a really impoverished um, island. Another long story, but series of events that God orchestrated to have me move there. And it had to do, a lot of it had to do with this supposedly deadly respiratory uh, syndrome that I had um, and um, this um, homeopath and her recommendation that because I was cold and tolerant, I had to go someplace where it was warm yeah. all the time and needed healing. Well, you know, who am I? That's at three o'clock in the morning. You know, what do I do? You know, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I'm an educated, I'm an educator. So you wind up there and the school system was, you know, not the best and no higher education, no tertiary education. And so what do you do? You start school. And I started a kindergarten through 12th grade Christian Academy that was supposed to have been a feeder school for a um, satellite campus of my black alma mater, Hampton University. So it was called Husk, Hampton University at St. Kitts. Mm -hmm. Politics, money, more politics, internal academic politics, yeah. kept the college from getting off of the ground. But I had made a commitment then to the people of St. Kitts to start this kindergarten through 12th grade Christian Academy. And so we did. And it was just so funny. We've always done things so small mm -hmm. and so personally. And I believe, I really have believed in the power of one. Yeah. You know, the power of 10 instead of, oh, you know, mega numbers and look at how many. So our school population at its highest was maybe 120. Yeah. Because the island was so school, it was so it was small. small. Yeah. It was considered to be a large well, it's, school. It's funny. But the way God used us to change the lives of those young people and to open up academic opportunities in the United States to those young people and to um, create opportunities where these young people who were foreign students matriculating in the United States were able to, you know, bypass all of the constraints and, 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 and high tuitions and so on that were placed because you were a foreign student and so on. So we were able to negotiate one by one the situations of people. And we have young people who are literally doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, lots of pastors, mm -hmm. <laughs> lots of pastors, lots of educators as a result of that experience. Um, something else happened, and again, it's another long story, and it's a story that I could only tell from my perspective, so I can't even promise that it would be you know, accurate, but but uh, St. Kitts was a place where there was a drug trade going on and, and there was a relationship between the drug trade in St. Kitts and Columbia, I'll just say that. And um, because we were a highly visible, highly vocal Christian school, we sort of, without realizing it, butted heads with the local drug cartel yeah. and it was just a mess. And I used to, I used to say, you know, but I'm just... You know, a housewife with like six children <laughs> doing a Christian school. Yeah. You know, why is the whole government coming down on me? Why are people coming to try to, you know, why am I getting yeah. threats in the middle of the night? And even with that, we carried on. I mean, as soon as, 
as soon and I didn't realize I thought I was a person who was kind of fearless, mm-hmm. but I'm not that fearless. What happens is whenever somebody makes me afraid, and that's a family yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it makes me mad right. yeah. that, that person has made me afraid. And so then I'll sort of stand up and, you know, bristle and, and yeah. be a little bit bolder. So anyway, there was a point at which my children were under physical attack and um there was a day at which something, you know, horrible happened with the and everybody is fine and everybody's healthy and nobody, you know, suffered PTSD or anything yeah. like that. But um um uh, there was a time at which, you know, a, a, a child came under, you know, threat of attack and my husband was there and he was just, and I said, you know, yeah, as we're running around, you know, to the police station and these people are laughing at us and these, you know, this drug lord is on the corner, you know, saying, you know, you you and yours are dead and everything. And my husband didn't say anything. And I said, you're not saying anything to me. And he said, God, you don't want to hear what I have to say. You know, you don't want to have to yeah. hear what you have. I mean, I trust God, but this is, you know, what you're doing and so on and so forth. So anyway. Shortly thereafter, and it wasn't really shortly thereafter, but there came a time when God sort of released me. Mm-hmm. And and his promise to me was always, if you do what I tell you to do, I promise you the best lives for your children. I promise you that I'll take care of your children. I promise you that they will thrive and you will thrive and they'll prosper and not a hair in their head will be harmed. So it's just one of those kinds of things. But there was a time when God released us. And we were able to come back to the United States. Okay. And we came back to the United States and, you know, we were in, we were engaged in sort of a quasi-homeschooling sort of organization and trying to find the opportunity to start a Genesis Christian Academy in the United States. And literally, a woman who was a very, very, a multi-millionaire, um, came from a multi-millionaire family, um, over the topic of emus, you know, the rat type yeah. family and the ostrich and the emu and the rail. Okay. Over the topic of emus, approached me and said, you know, I see what you're doing. I want to fund it. And, you know, do you need to purchase a building for a school? Here's the money. Do you need this? Do you need that? And continue to support us and so on. And that's how we got started in the United States, Genesis Christian Academy. And that was in, that's in Maryland. That was right? in Maryland. That was Coast. in Maryland. And we were on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay, really right on an estuary of the Chesapeake Bay, right on the water, and um, in Maryland. And at that time, George W. Bush became the president. And because we were so close to and recruiting a number of students who were Washington, D.C. students um, who had special education Mm -hmm. Plans and all of a sudden, I guess would you call it a senior member? I think they're called IAP plans. But in working with the District of Columbia government, we came to the attention of the federal government, George Bush, and his No Child and What Left Behind and Faith-Based Initiative, and the fact that we were taking these young people who had um, very dismal futures in terms of being in special education and turning them around and uh, helping them to become literate and helping them to get into college and so on. So that caught the attention of the I wanted to be able, but then in terms of our curriculum, even on the East Coast, we had started to teach holistic health practices to our kindergarten through 12th grade, grade students. 
we had we were right on the Chesapeake, and we had begun to awaken their interest in environmental studies and sustainability. We had a small organic farm, and students were coming from all southeast, you know, the most inner city areas yeah. of Washington, D.C., and feeling awakened and self-actualized through farming and raising animals and and culinary organic uh, cooking and so on, organic culinary arts, I should say. So we wanted to do all of these things. We had a small international community and wanted to be able to incorporate more international students at the same time. Oh, and the other thing that had happened was while we were educating young people, you know, getting them over their special education needs and and preparing them to get great scores on their college entrance aptitude tests and negotiating their way into colleges and universities all over the country. tuition-free. I do not believe in loans. I mean, ever, 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 ever. But while we were doing this, what would happen is we found that students who were in at-risk living situations were growing away from their families. And they would say, well, I just can't talk to my family and they just don't relate to me mm-hmm. anymore. And, you know, why wasn't my mom like this? And why wasn't my dad like that? And I found that so disturbing. You know, this notion that you pull kids out of a marginalized at-risk situation. And the result is you have some little, you know, brainiac successful intellectual who hates their past and hates their family and can't relate, yeah, hates their community and so on. But while we were doing this, what would happen is we found that students who were in at-risk living situations were growing away from their families. And they would say, well, I just can't, 
talk to my family and they just don't relate to me anymore. And, you know, why wasn't my mom like this? And why wasn't my dad like that? And I found that so disturbing. You know, this notion that you pull kids out of a marginalized, at-risk situation and the result is you have some little, you know, brainiac, successful intellectual who hates their past and hates their family and can't relate, yeah, hates their community and so on. So that to me was not of God. And God really inspired us to work with whole families. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of looking for more and more space and so on sort of came from those needs. But I would never say that there was a time that I sat down and articulated them to myself and others. Here's the way our life works. The way our life works is that your dad, the corporate executive had a massive, massive, massive health failure. Where at the same time, he was literally attacked by diabetes and congestive heart failure. And I mean, just a, just a series of sort of what we now would call autoimmune attacks that left him totally paralyzed in a coma at Johns Hopkins, you know, lying in a room, uh, pronounced dead. Well, God literally, supernaturally, according to his doctors, healed him from that. And he um, took six months off, you know, from his position and so on. And at the end of his six months, when he went back to work, we knew that he was a different guy and that something was up, something was about to happen. And everybody just, without talking about it, began to prepare himself or herself for a radical change. And the radical change came when your dad and I but your dad decided that he was, he was out, that he couldn't do the corporate thing anymore, that on one level or another, that directly or tangentially, he was contributing to the exploitation of, 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 of people and, and uh, um, gosh, you know, just, just, just I, would, I, can't, I can't be specific. I'm not supposed to be specific about, but hurting people, hurting people in the United States and abroad through corporate practices and policies and uh, hurting people of color here in the United States and abroad. And our setup had always been that Edward, your dad, was always the guy that made the million, you know, that made the megabucks. And the megabucks go back, you know, to our ministry. And that ministry feeds kids and pays everybody's college tuition and and takes care of everybody and does tuition-free education and so on and sends our students, you know, to to Florida and around the world and so on and our tap. And we were content with that. And one day, sort of God said, cash it all in, mm-hmm. cash it all in. So we literally had not one, but several family meetings where everybody had his or her opinion about things. And then we decided that uh, Edward was going to resign and that we were going to look for someplace else, someplace larger and someplace that we would develop to live. Long story short, I mean, a lot of looking and a lot of good stories to tell, but we wound up here in Texas, and we're on a 114-acre ranch, which um, it wasn't a ranch when we got here. It was just land. The development and the learning curve was tremendous. Mm -hmm. Don't ask me, you know, how many buildings we've incorrectly 
erected, only have to go to go back and reinforce. We literally did just about everything ourselves. Um, we the first thing I know to do when you move someplace is start a church. So we started a church. A number of people, and we became a name. Everything Jesus Ranch became a name that was passed around within the jailhouse community, so that people would literally get out of jail and come to our ranch and church and say, you know, I want to become a Christian, or I became a Christian in 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 in, in prison, or I understand that you're hiring laborers. I don't have skills, but would you? Could you? And so that's what we did. Um, the kind of and the level of marginalization and at-risk behaviors that we addressed, and I would say mostly successfully while we were here, and successfully means just relieving people from the things that enslaved them and um, putting them on a path where they have the options to be, I use the term fully self-actualized, that means to raise healthy family, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to, to be able to pursue their dreams and so on. So, 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 so that's sort of what we did. And uh, there, were, there was one house, and we happen to be in it right now because you turned part of it into your studio. Yeah. There was one house that was here on the property. Now there may be around 10. There were no barns. There was no infrastructure. There was no anything. And my husband was not the do-it-yourself, fix-it guy. And now he can do anything. You know, he repairs ta- he repairs tractors and, you know, engages in construction. And he and another guy who uh, live on the property are just the go-for-it, fix-it, yeah. you know, duct tape, replace the part, figure it out, diagnose, pray, and watch it work kind of people. Um we went through a period where he was involved in stock market investments to generate the income to keep what we're doing here going. But I think it was 2006, 2007, God said, you know, the stock market is not your God. Bam, bang, crash. I am. And then we had to make a decision. Were we doing this because we had tremendous resources or were we doing this just because God said doing it, do it? And so we rolled up our sleeves and kept on going. So you said that I'm going to be doing online school, and we are not, we have recently decided. What we are proposing to do is to continue our commitment to educate whole families. And we are opening up our ranch to whole families where mommies, daddies, and children can come. And the mommies and daddies are trained in eco-industries. In other words, they learn how to become organic farmers. We have a guy who's a master carpenter here that wants to teach people, young people and their parents, how to build tiny homes and how to engage in other kinds of construction. We want to manufacture beautiful and, and, and upscale uh, cloth diapers and distribute them throughout the, the the low scale community so that people now will have a sustainable and economic way to diaper their babies' bottoms. We want to continue to do what we're doing in the area of health and wellness. And we have a number of people who have come to the ranch and we make no medical claims. I only tell the story. And They've come to the ranch and they've been on all kinds of sustaining medications for chronic illness. 
and they start working here and they eat organic food. And I'm not talking about USDA stamp. I'm talking about the food that comes right from this ranch, the milk and the cheese and the eggs and the and the and and, and, and our own meats and and our vegetables and so on. And and in six months and seven months and eight months they are able, they go back to the doctor and they're able to, you know, get off of their medications and live healthily. And that's something about which I'm really feeling passionately these days in light of the fact that it's recently been announced in some medical journals, journals, including Lancet, that some of the medications that are prescribed for cardiovascular disease, for hypertension, for type 2 diabetes, have a component to them that sort of attracts COVID and makes the onset of COVID much more severe. It's a component called ACE inhibitors, and it's not my place to try to describe this scientifically. But what that says to me is it's time to stop the nonsense and reclaim the health that God has promised us through eating naturally and eating healthily and still enjoying good food. You know, the Bible talks about enjoying the sweet tastes of things and, you know, having feasts and, and, and eating the fatted calf. So it's not about eating carrots and, and, and soybeans or something yeah. like that. I mean, that, that wasn't a good choice. Yeah. <clears throat> but we create food that is just amazing in taste and in health benefits. And so we want to empower other people to do that. We want to empower three or four families that come to the ranch then to get together and take their resources and acquire more property and engage in eco in, in eco-friendly uh endeavors and, 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 and trades and so on and bring other people in. I think this is the trend of an America and a planet that's going to survive. And so the idea again, and that that that's that other thing about being raised in a way, and it takes me all the way back, so, you know, 63 years back to the way I was born and the way I was raised, to believe that everything belongs to you. The whole world in, in belongs to you. I met so many people of color who think that if something is not directly related to racial issues, that it's not their domain. It's yeah, not uh, something, uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, it's not even uh, about importance or relevance, but it's about they're not having an entitlement to participate yeah. in the making of decisions about that. Well, two things on that score. One, there is a gentleman out of Houston by the name of Robert Bullard who has written about the impact of the environment and environmental decisions and climate change on communities of color and his work and the telling of his stories um, and, and, the, and the citing of evidence, particularly in the Houston community, proves that indeed, you know, this is not the case, that the environment infect, uh, affects us all. Mm-hmm. So we have created a curriculum and it's called Generation Kindness Curriculum. And it engages the students in an awareness of global and domestic history 
and it also engages students in attainable social activism projects that they are going to be participating in right in the Seguin community. The idea is for children to become accustomed to moving and shaking and changing and to recognize the power of one, the power of a few to change the world. You instill that in a young person and real change will follow. Um, I don't, you haven't heard me talk a lot about our being a Christian school. We are a decidedly Christian school. One of the reasons I hesitate to talk about that is because sometimes I think it's going to be misunderstood because we are not a religious school. Mm-hmm. We are a school that integrates the principles of the Bible into our teaching and tries to encourage people to study the life of and follow the teachings of Jesus. And that sometimes looks different from the experiences that we've had with institutionalized church. And this is not to disparage any efforts or, 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 or any religious movements. And the other thing that we are as a school is totally inclusive. And, you know, people can, you know, look over the top of their glasses and talk about, you know, who's bad and who's right and who's... And all we do is say, and that's what Jesus did. He loved everybody and he supported everybody. And his purpose in life was to empower everybody. And he has. So now we just have to collect it. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mom, for this uh, wonderful conversation. Uh, One last question. If you had the opportunity to send a worldwide text, what would your message be? Two words. Uh, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Why Jesus saves? Why Jesus saves? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and, and and I mean, it sort of gets back back to politics, because one of the things that I find disturbing in this day and age and frustrating is the fact that we so place our trust in and reliance in and dependence on this thing called United States government. And what I look at is the fact that anything and everything can change. It's subject to upheaval every four years. So right now is the day after election day. And so we're in the throes of this drama about who is going to be our president. And I'm hearing about some of the initiatives that have been voted into existence um, around the country. And so, for example, there's a state that has voted for uh, the raising of the minimum wage by 2016. Yes. And I look at that, 2026, rather. Mm-hmm. And I look at that in 2020, and I think, but by 2024, there could be another administration, yeah, like, and that could be yeah. repealed. By 2020, I don't know, 2023. 20, if they begin the implementation of that new legislation, the promulgation of regulations could be such that this person is exempt. And if you make less than that, you don't have to. And if you work under these circumstances, you can. If you, so that it makes the law powerless. There comes a point in time where people have to begin to create institutions and do for themselves with each other. 
and the reliance on government. Yes, we continue to vote and we continue to strive to have a democracy that is a truly inclusive democracy that provides equal opportunity to all people. But we have to, I think, live it first. And there's so many issues, even with the nature of our government and our capitalist society, that go beyond race to economics. And that's a very complex conversation. And it's a conversation where people line up against words, you know, like like, like um, capitalists and socialists and their loaded terms and so on. But while we sort through all of that, there's something called equality, equal opportunity, fairness, justness, and the next generation creating a planet that will be a good and healthy, sustainable place, not just for this next generation, but as the Iroquois say, for the seventh generation. And that's not waiting for politicians to do it. It's grassroots initiatives, alliances, coalitions amongst people on the community level, the grassroots level, where we start to live this and teach this now. So um, where can people go to sign up? (laughs) Where do you go to sign up? So the... Um, what, I, I don't understand your question, honestly. I mean, uh, is if somebody wanted to become a part of this community, this community is the website and email that people can go can uh, message you. Okay, so if somebody says, "I heard your 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 podcast, and I'm interested in finding out more and more discussion and so on," here we go over the airwaves. My email address is Gina, G I N A at ejranch.com. So it's G-I-N-A at E-J-R-A-N-C-A dot com. And, and now the bigger question is that you can have all of these lofty ideas and academicians have written all of these wonderful books and we've got the statistics and we know what justice should be. But then comes the next question. And you know this from my teaching style and from my preaching style. What is it? Yes, but how? Yeah, Y-B-H, yes, but how? And even what we're trying to do in terms of our educational curriculum and Genesis, um, the, 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 the Generation Kindness curriculum is to engage students right now in six years old, 12 years old, 15 years old, to be part of real change so that they understand the process of engaging in change and promoting kindness every step of the way. Because I think that kindness and, uh, and, and, and love and respect, respect and full inclusion of everybody in the continued growth and development of this place called the planet Earth is going to be the key to our success and our survival. Okay, thank you very much, Mom. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Black Gold Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the show on Instagram at the Black Gold Pod in order to be updated about new episodes each week. 
In order to listen to incredible and inspiring stories, please go to the Black Gold Podcast website and make a donation so the stories of these incredible and amazing people will be waiting for you each and every week so that you may be inspired and become an inspiration to someone else. You can find all of that and more on the new Black Gold Podcast website blackgoldpod.wordpress.com that is b-l-a-c-k-g-o-l-d p as in paul o-d dot wordpress as in the blogging website dot com again that is blackgoldpod.wordpress.com